Welcome to the History Trust Summer Podcast Series. This podcast is based on the original recording from our Talking History program. You can read more about the podcast, its content, and speaker in the show notes via your preferred podcast platform. Talking History was created on Ghana land, and the History Trust acknowledges the First Nations peoples of South Australia, whose connection to country and living cultures began in time immemorial and continues to the present. In went the lance, and her blood crimsoned the water. Her violent purge bespoke her agony. Again and again the lance penetrated. She passed in wild career close to where we were standing. We could observe every incident of the chase, better than if we had been in the boat. What a triumph of human skill and courage over brute force to see a little cockle shell of a boat and half a dozen gallant fellows killing a monster, one single dash of whose tail would annihilate them. As a whale passed us, she blew up clouds of spray, but presently it became tinged with blood, and in about an hour, she yielded to her fate. Tonight, I'm going to speak about the history of whaling in South Australia, which in itself is a big story to tell. It's a story of early contact between newcomers, Europeans, Americans, Maori, Pacific Islanders, and Aboriginal people who had lived here for countless generations. It is one stained by violence between cultures and also between humans and their prey. It is laced with rum and I'm sure a great deal of discomfort on the part of the whalers who endured the tedium of days and weeks of waiting on cold remote coasts, pierced by short bursts of intense, sometimes terrifying and almost always putrid activity when the whales were in the bays. W.H. Lee summed it up well when he visited the whaling stations at Encounter Bay here in South Australia, when he writes, there is no employment more hazardous, more laborious, more disgusting than whaling. As large as this story is, it fits into an even larger story, one that crosses cultures and explores the many different ways in which people have interacted with whales. Some of you, I am sure, know that whaling was one of the first industries in Australia. Ships of the Second Fleet were sent to whale after disgorging their human cargo on the then remote shores of Port Jackson. Indeed, whale ships were the most frequent visitors to Port Jackson during the first decade of settlement. At least one third of the convict transports and store ships sent by the government before 1800 were British whalers under charter. And these British ships were also joined by American and French whalers. The whale ships were seeking sperm whales. They had the best oil and they would also hunt southern right whales in the winter months, anchoring in bays where whales were known to carve. The methods from shore or from ship were fairly similar. Crews of six men would be launched in small boats and chase after the whales. A harpooner would be in the bow, he would harpoon the whale. The harpoon was really just to attach the whale to the boat and the whale would then drag the boat, sometimes for many miles. Once a whale was tired, then the harpooner would swap positions with the headsman who was at the rudder and the headsman would kill the whale with a lance. So once the whales were caught, the blubber was stripped from them. It was cut off using large knives called flensing knives. Sometimes this was done in the water, other times it was done on a flensing platform on land and the blubber was usually pulled off as well as being cut using pulleys or a block and tackle and those pieces were then 
put into a large pot called a tripod where the oil was rendered from the blubber and the solid pieces of blubber that were remaining floating on the surface were scooped off with something that resembled a very large slotted spoon and then those solid pieces were used to fuel the fire. And this would have been uh, quite a smelly, dirty and strenuous thing to do. And I'll just read a quote. It's a literary quote from a book called In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. There is a murderous appearance about the bloodstained decks and the huge masses of flesh and blubber lying here and there and a ferocity on the looks of the men, heightened by the red, fierce glare of the fires. Oil was the main reason that European nations were hunting whales in the 19th century. Whale oil was being used to illuminate houses in lamps, as well as the streets of the cities of Europe and the colonies of European nations. And it was also used to lubricate machinery. The baleen from the whales at the time, it was called bone. So you might see advertisements advertising whale bone for corsets and things like that. But it's actually the baleen. It was also taken from the mouths of the baleen whales, of the, the southern right whales that were being hunted here in southern Australia. By the 20th century, the importance of the two products had changed. Oil was being made, used mainly for margarines. It had been replaced mostly by petroleum products, so it wasn't being used as a lubricant or for lighting much anymore, and the baleen was worth more than the oil at that time, until it was eventually replaced by plastics. So whaling ships and whaling crews were visiting South Australia very early on, but the earliest use by Europeans of what was to become South Australia seems to have been sealing. In 1803, Captain Isaac Pendleton visited Kangaroo Island with a gang of sealers after he met Nicholas Bodine. Pendleton stayed until 1804 and shipped 14,000 seal skins to Sydney. Tasmanian whaling began in that same year, in 1803, in the Derwent River and grew quickly until the British government introduced heavy taxes on colonial oil in 1809. The taxes were eventually dropped in the 1820s and the colonial industry recovered and in fact grew very quickly. Between 1803 and 1836, a small group of European men chose to settle on the remote islands of a southern coastline including Kangaroo Island and Flinders Island here in South Australia. From a European point of view at that time, these islands were about as remote a place as could be found and outside of any official colonial discipline. And this might have been what appealed to these men. Some of them were reported to be convicts who had run away. Anyhow, records from visiting whale ships after colonisation suggest that some of these men had established gardens and farms and were living off their crops. They hunted seals, kangaroos and wallabies for furs to trade. And visiting whalers would bring tobacco and rum to trade for provisions and furs. By the time that the ships of the South Australian Company embarked to establish settlements in the colony of South Australia, whaling and sealing were well established along the southern coastline. Despite a late start, whaling proved lucrative for several South Australian colonists, although not the South Australian Company. Several of the ships sent by the SA Company were equipped as whalers, and the then manager Samuel Stevens arranged for purchase of more equipment and finding suitable men to man stations and ships. It wasn't until 1837 that the stations were established, one at Rosetta Head, one at Thistle Island, and a station was operating at Sleaford Bay, but probably by foreign whaling vessels. Some of the whalers lived with their wives, though many were single, and sexual relationships between whalers and Nuttendary women were recorded by William Wyatt, protector of Aborigines, in 1837, who noted in his report to Governor Gawler, 
It is incumbent on me to observe that the criminal connection of the majority of the whalers attached to the company's fishery with the native women has in a very great degree been the cause of this unhappy occurrence and if such disgraceful practices be continued, may operate strongly upon the minds of the natives to the injury of the colonists at large. As another result of this vicious connection, the prisoner himself is afflicted with venereal disease, and many other natives are known to be in the same wretched condition. As unsettling as these relationships may have been to Wyatt, of more concern to the South Australian company was a looming crisis of management. Samuel Stevens proved to be incompetent. He overpaid whalers, couldn't find decent headsmen and became altercated in a firearms offence, whereby he and another man were accused of holding a rival, Captain Blankensop, at gunpoint. The case never went to trial, though, as Blankensop died trying to navigate in the mouth of the River Murray. Stevens was removed as superintendent by David McLaren, who quickly set about divesting the company of its stake in whaling. His first year in charge, 1838, was a particularly poor one. At Encounter Bay, only two out of four headsmen were capable of killing a whale. At both stations, whalers complained of poor provisions and threatened to abscond. 1839 was perhaps worse, though McLaren had entered into an agreement with the Hack brothers and the energetic and experienced Captain John Hart managed the whole enterprise. A new station was established at Sleaford Bay. Still, by the end of June, no whales had been sighted at Thistle Island and it was abandoned. The crew returned to Encounter Bay where they absconded. In that same year, John Dutton, the headsman of the Granite Island station, claimed to uncover a plot to destroy stocks of oil and restrain six of the whalers. One of them, Alexander Riches, escaped and attempted to cross the causeway in the dark, but was later found drowned. Dutton was charged with manslaughter and work at the station ceased. In 1840, Captain Hart was able to turn a profit at Sleaford Bay and Encounter Bay, and the season ran smoothly, though McLaren had already withdrawn the South Australian company. The whaling stations were places where Aboriginal people were interacting with colonists quite early on in the history of a colony. And at times, Aboriginal whalers were also part of the workforce at the whaling station, especially, it seems, at Encounter Bay. This area is part of the traditional land of the Nudanjeri. I want to share with you a story of Condoli. So Condoli was a totem and also features in his creation stories. So Condoli was once a man. He had fire but he wouldn't share. Other jealous men speared him in the neck, stealing his fire. Flames shot out of his wound and he ran to the sea where he became the whale. Steam rising from his wound can be seen today in the spray of the southern right whale. Another aspect of Nudanjeri culture around whales was that strong men were known to be able to sing whales to shore, but also at times they would sing to protect the mothers and calves, warding them away from the shallows. Stranded whales are believed to have been used by Nut and Jerry. There would have been occasional events with a valuable food resource. The bones were also used, sometimes to make shelters. Ear bones have been found that have been ground out. They're believed to have been used as water carriers. So W.H. Lee, who was surgeon on the South Australian, he described the scene as he saw it in 1837. When our people killed the first whale at Encounter Bay, as soon as a useful part had been taken away from the carcass, so the blubber and the baling, the refuse was turned adrift. The natives who had assembled in numbers upon the beach immediately pounced on the offal, cutting off lumps as large as they could move under and pushing their spoil before them as they swam ashore, while others, having delivered their load, returned, mounted the carcass, which was literally covered with their black bodies and sliced out another cargo. 
These pieces were removed to a convenient place for the entertainment and a party of running footmen were dispatched to deliver invitations to the neighbouring friends to come and eat well with them. It was a scene that defied description. Everyone screws off a piece and crams it down his throat. They never cease eating till unable to swallow another morsel. When those who are able arise and bury the remains, which are disinterred when appetite returns. Condescension in Lee's account is plain. There is also Nuttingery narrative about the time of year that whales come to the bays that provides better understanding of these practices. The Nuttingery know that when Condoli comes, it is a time for gathering, celebration, ceremony, and for trading. Although Nuttingery had spiritual connections to Condoli, it did not take long for them to become involved in whaling. The first reference to Nuttingery whalers is an 1839 report in the Southern Australian newspaper that described their role. It appears that a boat is employed in the fishery which is entirely manned with natives. They take part in the occupation equally with the white men and are found to be not less expert than they. If the Aboriginal inhabitants are competent to this laborious species of employment, what should prevent their being rendered efficient in many other paths of industry? In his reminiscences from the 1930s, Reverend William Newland reported on specific whalers among the Nudungeri, as well as what might have been the more casual relationships. The blacks gave the whalers much help as watchers. It was in their interest to do so, for the capture of the big fish meant a royal feast for them. Incidentally, one of the best harpoonists at the station was an Aboriginal, Black Richard. The next mention of Nuttingeri whalers was in 1843. A new fishery had been established at Encounter Bay near to Granite Island. Competition was strong and in 1846 Captain Hart and his partners at that time disbanded their crew partway through the season. Not long after they did so, a large pot of whales entered the bay. The station manager Barton didn't have his usual crew and gathered together an Aboriginal crew, but they were forced to cut loose. The South Australian Register reporting that his crew unfortunately got afraid and as the monster rolled in agony, they feared lest every succeeding lash should sink them, boat and all. More success was had in later years and in 1852, the protector of Aborigines noted in the quarterly reports that in consequence of the scarcity of European labour, numbers have found employment with the farmers and stock owners at the whaling station. Mr Clark, the chief headsman, speaks very highly of their behaviour. Later records of whaling come from reminiscences of the whalers themselves. There's one unique reminiscence which comes from Susti Wilson, a Nardinjeri whaler. My name is Chris Wilson. I'm Nardinjeri in Ghana, Lachilachi. Susti Wilson is my great-great-grandfather. I heard about Susti as a young, younger person, but uh, I guess I came across him when I was doing my PhD research in Tyndale's Lower Murray journals. There was a newspaper article there of him which the local advertiser had published around his experiences in the 1920s, hunting kangaroo and also his, his work in the whaling industry as well. Susie says that the Encounter Bay, tribe of natives, many of whom were employed on the boats, were much better whalers than the whites. This, he said, was because they had been throwing spears all their lives and took to harpooning naturally. When Susie was quite young, he was in a whaling crew, dragged about 12 miles out to sea by a huge whale. We took two days and two nights to row back, he said. Not many of the young men today could have done it. So the third story that Susie tells about a whale enchanter referred to by the whalers as Charlie Warren. So much did the white whalers believe in this power that they used to give old Charlie rations every day. I was there one day when they forgot to do this, said Susie. 
So Charlie Warner ran out to the rock near the sea and began his chanting. A huge whale which was lying in the bay vanished in a few seconds. The whaling crew dashed out but could not even find the wake which is usually left by the whales. They returned and went to old Charlie and gave him rations. He said, now you catch him. The same afternoon, they found the whale in the same place. I often saw him bring whales into the bay as well. After the 1850s in South Australia, whales had been hunted so much that the whale stocks collapsed. There just simply weren't enough whales in the bays to support the industry. Gradually, scientific observation of whales and whaling increased, and attitudes to whale stocks changed. In 1935, the southern right whale was the first whale placed on the global endangered list. Australian whaling, though, continued for another century. The last whaling station closed in 1979 at Albany. Only a few years after that, Australia supported the 1982 moratorium on commercial whaling, and Australia is now known as a vocal anti-whaling nation. When I began researching Leviathan, it brought to mind a book my sister had given me many years beforehand, The Philosopher's Dog by Raymond Gator. In it, Gator explores the relationship of people to animals. He recounts a story where his dog Gypsy, after months of frustrated pursuit of an adopted cat, Tosca, who had taken to sitting nonchalantly on the windowsill, finally trapped and savagely mauled her. Tosca escaped, seriously injured, and though both animals were loved by the family, Gator retrieved a shovel to put the cat out of her misery. In the meantime, the cat had crawled under the house. Three weeks passed and she returned. Months later, she took to sitting in the windowsill again, only to be caught by Gypsy a second time. This time, Gator collected her and took her to the vet, where she stayed a night and was put down. The vet disposed of her body. He later goes on, My awareness of the brutishness of what I had intended to do to Tosca had nothing to do with my estimate of whether it would be painful for her. I assumed that if I had hit her with sufficient force, I would not have caused her pain. Our attention when we think about these matters is too easily drawn to what the animal will feel, and we think too little of what our actions mean. We think about the pain we will cause, but not the dishonour we will inflict. By no means would I take this to say that Gator is arguing that willingly causing animals pain is okay, so long as it is done in the right spirit. Rather, it is also important to consider the dignity of the animal. This in turn has impacts on the dignity of the people involved. There are other passages in The Philosopher's Dog where Gator espouses a science where facts and moral reasoning sit side by side informing each other. To some extent, I think this is how judgments are made, perhaps unconsciously, about what type of whaling is acceptable. Subsistence and commercial whaling causes whales pain. This is a fact. It's not possible to kill a whale painlessly. It is also a fact that Arctic people who eat a non-traditional diet are more likely to have chronic health problems such as diabetes. So does this need in some way make the subsistence whaling more palatable than say commercial whaling by nations where such a need doesn't exist? And of course the US government could subsidise imported food so that fresh produce was not so expensive. So some might question if there is a need at all. At some level though I think also the scale of the slaughter and the transparency with which certain types of hunting occur are probably important, as well as whether or not the cultural importance claimed by the protagonists are considered valid. Tied up in it all is the belief that whales are intelligent and social animals. They care for their young. Often pods of whales will wait, seemingly in the hope that other stranded whales will free themselves, 
they communicate and share common patterns of sound. It is interesting to note, though, that John Bannister, a well-regarded and now retired Australian cetacean expert, suggests that whales are not super intelligent, but they are very well adapted to their environment and intelligent in their need to solve problems in that world. Are they as intelligent as cows? Or perhaps pigs? And speaking of cows, we can be as certain as it is possible for us to be that cows slaughtered in modern abattoirs feel little, if any, pain. We might wonder, though, at the dignity of slowly proceeding through such a facility. How does the meaning of this type of meat procurement compare to the meaning associated with an Inuit whale hunt, with its attendant prayer, singing and celebration? I don't know the answer. For the animals, perhaps there is little difference other than the amount of pain and fear involved. I suspect that whether or not animals are intelligent has a bearing on how we might feel about their use as food, because they may in some way be conscious of their plight, or perhaps it is because it places them closer to us. Though of course often we might also set aside these preoccupations. Pigs like to play. They're smart. They have good long-term memories and they can be socially manipulative with other pigs. They can tell which people are nice to them and which aren't. They're also able to distinguish between pigs they know and pigs that are strangers. Some scientists have suggested that in some respects they are similar to dogs and primates. Nevertheless, pork and bacon remain popular foods for many who would never eat whale. Reflecting on why it is okay for one group of people to whale and not another, and acknowledging that our own views towards animals are often historically grounded and also able to change. The fact that we can ask questions like these is what makes us human. It is what differentiates us from other animals. Whaling was an important industry in South Australia. Tonight I've barely scratched the surface, so I hope it has given you an appreciation of the type of activity and its scale. Whalers and sealers were often the first Europeans to explore the coasts and their hinterlands. Whaling stations were places where indigenous and non-indigenous people interacted, and these histories are important today. They help us understand where we have come from, and collaborative research has the ability to contribute to an ongoing process of reconciliation. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This is just one of the many stories of South Australia's history from the past, unfolding today and now preserved for the future. To read the show notes about this podcast, or to access the original recording, search Talking History in your favourite podcast platform, and don't forget to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. You can also visit history.sa.gov.au to learn more about the History Trust, our collections, public programs and museums, and how we are giving the past a future now.